Well, happy Wednesday evening to you, church family. Uh, get a copy of the scripture and find Revelation chapter 5. I love Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to go through this chapter tonight in detail. And what I want us to look at is uh, the subject matter, the answer to life's greatest dilemmas. The answer to life's greatest dilemmas. Let's pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 5, and, and as, as I indicated, we'll go through the whole chapter, so let's read the chapter now in its entirety. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding seven golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. On the afternoon of August the 2nd, 1997, James Olive, a 37-year-old unemployed construction worker, woke up and he found himself in a tough spot. He was lying face down between the rails of a railroad track. Now, according to the Chicago Tribune News Service, police believe Olive might have been drinking and passed out on the track. Now, Olive's story, as you can imagine, was quite different. He said he slipped on a rock while walking his dog, and he fell 
bumped his head and it knocked him out. Well, whatever the cause, when Olive woke up, he realized what a dilemma he was in. He realized he had real problems. You see, he realized he was not alone on those tracks. Passing over top of him was a 109-car freight train. Olive said, I got a headache, let me tell you. He, he later said from his Oak Hill, Florida hospital bed, he said about every three or four seconds, an axle would come along and crack me upside the back of my head. But it's not like I could get up and run. He went on to say, it's a good thing I wasn't on my back because the train would have probably torn my face off. He was in a real dilemma. I want to ask you tonight, what dilemmas do you face in life? How big are your problems in life? Is it your marriage, your job, your children? Could it be a financial problem? Think about the problems right now in America. Everything we're seeing daily now in the news. The problems we're facing as a nation. Folks, what do we do with our problems? Do we stay awake at night? Do we pace the floor? Do we worry ourselves sick? Do we simply try to tell ourselves, hey, I don't have a problem. It's somebody else's problem. What do you do with the dilemmas of life? Well, folks, I think Revelation 5 tells us a great deal. You know, it's really unfortunate that there's a chapter division between chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 5 is actually a continuation of the worship that we were introduced to in chapter 4. We come into chapter 5 and we see God seated upon his throne. So as we move into chapter 5, we, we see verse 1, and, and it's a very smooth continuation of what we've just been reading, if, if you were to go back into chapter 4. We're still seeing a picture of the awesomeness of God that John started writing about in chapter 4. And you'll notice that God seated upon his throne has something in his hand. He has a scroll. Now, I want you to see, first of all, with me tonight, the problem from verses 1 to 4. The problem. The problem has to do with a scroll that no one can open. No one is worthy to open this scroll. Now, the word book in verse 1 literally refers to a scroll. Normally, scrolls were written on only one side. But you'll notice that this one is written on both the front and the back. The idea is that it is so so packed full of contents, every ounce of space is needed. Every ounce of space needs to be utilized. And so it's written on the front and the back. Now, what are the contents of the scroll? Many scholars say that what we have here is a title deed to the earth. Along with the title deed to the earth, it's the record of earth's history. Specifically, it's believed that this title deed includes the final years of history. And so, in other words, what we read about 
beginning in Revelation 6 and going through the end of the book in chapter 22 is the contents of this scroll. I want you to also notice that it is a sealed scroll. Beginning in chapter 6, the seals begin to be broken and the contents are revealed. As the seventh seal is broken, then we get into the seven trumpets, and that carries us down through chapter 11. And then after the seventh trumpet, we get into the bowls of wrath or judgment being poured out. And so the contents of the scroll are the prophecies of the end events. And what we see in these prophecies is the salvation of believers and the judgment and condemnation of unbelievers. Now, What's the problem? What's the dilemma? The problem or the dilemma here is that no one is found worthy to break the seals and to begin to unroll the scroll. Now, there have been many people throughout history who would have been willing to do so. I think of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He was an egomaniac at times. Or how about Alexander the Great, of whom it said he conquered the then-known world and then sat down to cry because there were no more countries to conquer. And he was only approximately 33 years of age when he died. Then there were the various Caesars of the Roman Empire, and then Napoleon, and, and then a madman like Hitler. Uh, on and on we could go with figures through history who would have been willing to take this scroll, to break the seals, and to begin unrolling it. But folks, the question is not who is willing. The question is rather who is worthy. No one could be found worthy. I want you to notice the threefold search that is made to find somebody worthy. A search in heaven. I would assume that would be among the heavenly hosts, the angels. Think about some of the angels. Michael, the great guardian angel of Israel that the New Testament speaks of. Michael would have been there, but he remains silent. He does not step forward. Or how about the angel Gabriel? Gabriel announced the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gabriel doesn't step forward claiming to be worthy. A search is likewise made on earth. And again, the verdict is the same. No man is worthy. Think of some of the great men of, of the Bible even. Enoch, remember Enoch who walked so closely with God that one day he walked right into heaven. Somebody once said that Enoch walked so closely to God that one day God simply said to him, Enoch, we're a lot closer to my house than to yours. Just come on home with me. Enoch doesn't step forward. Not Abraham either. The Bible refers to Abraham as the friend of God. Could you imagine being called the friend of God? Abraham doesn't step forward. Isaiah, who said, here am I, Lord, send me. He had that great uh, vision of God, high and lifted up in the temple. Isaiah, I, I didn't even mention 
Figures like Moses or Joshua. How about Mary, the mother of Jesus? Even though the New Testament says she was highly favored among women, she's not worthy. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian and missionary ever, who God used to write much of our New Testament. He's not worthy. He doesn't step forward. Neither does Simon Peter nor James or John, the sons of thunder. And so under earth, or on the earth rather, uh, no one can be found who's worthy. Imagine this, no man, no principality or power, even among the angels, is worthy. Nobody on earth or under the earth, nobody living or nobody who's died, uh, no one is worthy. Now, pretend that you don't know the rest of the chapter. I think you can understand the fact of why we have a problem. We have a dilemma. Because you see, to the one who is worthy, the authority is going to be given to unroll the scroll. And to that person will also be the authority that's given to be in charge of the execution of all of these events. Again, the verdict is what? No one is worthy. Folks, what a stunning revelation of the depravity of the human race. You know, throughout history, men have not wanted to admit this. They've not wanted to admit their shortcomings. Filled with human pride, many have adopted the same attitude of one ancient Greek philosopher named Protagoras who used to say man is the measure of all things. Now think of the arrogance in that statement. Man is the measure of all things. Protagoras and and many of the other Greek philosophers rejected the biblical view of God and the biblical view of man and of reality itself and, and put man and man's experiences at the center of everything. But what does the Bible affirm? And what do we see here in Revelation 5? Regardless of the advancements men have been able to make upon the face of the earth, man is an utter failure at being able to conquer his biggest problems. You see, folks, you and I don't have control over everything to the extent that we might think we do. And a lot of times what we do control, we end up making a mess out of. Man is a failure at being able to solve the greatest problems that he faces. So many of our problems are spiritual in in nature. And the best that man has to offer comes up short every single time. And so what's the result of this? John begins to weep. This is the only reference to crying in heaven that I'm aware of. The Bible says that heaven is a place where God will wipe away all tears. And yet here John is weeping. And the word that is used of weeping is a word that describes loud sobbing. You have to understand what's going on here. To John, it appears that the situation is one of despair. 
To John, it must have seemed like the curse of God on the human race and on the earth would now never be lifted. Was paradise going to be lost forever? Was the cross impotent after all to save mankind from God's wrath? Was there going to be no lasting atonement for man's sin? In the end, was evil going to win out over good? Was hate going to win out over love? Was death going to win out over life? Who can really blame John for weeping? Do you ever feel that way over your problems? Do you ever feel like it's no use, there's no help? Think of the thousands in the world every day whose lives are filled with despair and they don't realize there's a God who loves them and a God who has the solutions. So we've seen the problem. Thankfully, there's a message to report. The second thing I want you to see with me tonight is the person. Read with me again verses 5 to 7. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The elder says to John, John, stop weeping. Look to the proper person. And who is that? It's none other than Jesus. John, take a good look at Jesus. Behold him. And the same invitation is extended to you and me today as we think about our problems. Look to the person of Christ. There's a man, there's one who is worthy. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, folks, our problems are minute compared to what John faced in the vision. Because, again, I want you to understand, to John, it seemed like the consummation of the whole entire plan of redemption might be in jeopardy. It appeared that maybe nothing would ever change. Probably appeared to John that all of God's promises were going to come crashing down at John's feet. Why had John been a disciple? Why had he followed Jesus? Why had he suffered for his faith? He's now exiled on the Isle of Patmos. John must have felt like the psalmist who said, surely my faith has been in vain. But you see, folks, John had not seen Jesus. When he saw Jesus, that changed everything. The elder says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. John had seen his problems without seeing Jesus. Now he's told to see Jesus. 
Now, does this mean that Jesus is going to wipe away all of our problems and instantly give us everything that we want in life? No, I'm not suggesting that for a moment. Sometimes God even allows us to have problems for a reason. I mean, like the Apostle Paul, for instance. God allowed him to have that thorn in the flesh to teach Paul uh, to be more dependent on God and to know that God's grace would be sufficient. Problems have a way of pinning us to God in dependence. Sometimes God allows us to have problems so that we will learn of God's comfort through that problem. And then when we see somebody else going through that same problem, we're able to help them with the help God's given to us. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that we serve a God of comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we can turn around and help to comfort others who are going through the affliction that we're going through. So I'm not going to suggest that God takes all of our problems away. But what I am suggesting is that just like John, in the midst of our problems, we need to see Jesus. Instead of just focusing in on the problem and just spinning our wheels, looking at that problem and fretting over that problem over and over and over again, we need to see beyond the problem. And we need to put our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the answer to man's greatest dilemmas and man's greatest shortcomings. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The point is that if Jesus can take care of the greatest problems we face that are eternal in scope, he can surely help us with our problems in this world in a temporal scope. If he doesn't erase the problem, he'll give you the grace to endure it. Now, look at the way that Jesus is described here. In verse 5, he's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. What do we say about a lion today? The lion is the king of the jungle. A lion is a picture of strength and power. A lion produces fear in its enemies. You've heard me say before, I, I love to watch some of these nature shows, these animal shows, National Geographic or Discovery Channel. Uh, it's fascinating to see some of these film crews with uh, with elephants or wildebeest or migrations of antelopes. Uh, you know, one thing I always don't like to see uh, are the hyenas. Those little rascals are, are like demons that gang up on an animal and they give that eerie laugh. It, it doesn't seem like when they're in a pack that they're afraid of anything. Uh, I remember one show I was watching one time, they were, they were taunting female lions. Uh, and all of a sudden, these huge male lions came running in. 
And you would have thought the hyenas had seen a ghost. They're scared to death. They they run like crazy to get rid of those lions. Those male lions, I watched them in that show, a male lion would chase a hyena and, and take one bite through the whole backbone of the hyena and the hyena would just collapse and die. And you almost feel like standing on the back of your seat cheering for the lions because they're getting rid of those pesky little hyenas. I think the show that I was watching was called The Hyena Killers, talking about these huge male lions. The lion is a picture of strength, raw strength and power. What's Jesus called here? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In your problems, he can be your strength. He's also described here as the root of David. In the Old Testament, David was considered the king that they looked back to, a king who had a heart for God. Obviously, David made his mistakes, but he had a heart for God. And and the Old Testament prophesied that when the Messiah came, he would be in the line of David. He was in the Davidic line, but he wasn't less than David. He was greater than David. He was the root of David. Circle that word root here. He's the root of David. In other words, he was the source of strength and wisdom for King David. Anything David was able to do was only because of the Lord. Verse 5 goes on to describe him also as the overcomer. And it's in the perfect tense. And what that means is he overcame and the results of him overcoming continue. They go on and on and on into the future, into eternity. That's the significance here of the perfect tense. A past action with continuing results that go on. He's also described here in verse 6 as the lamb. This lamb is standing, even though it has been slain. I want you to think about what John is writing here. He was slain, the lamb slain. In the Old Testament, when someone sinned, the person was required to bring a lamb to the priest at the temple. The sinner had to grasp the lamb with both hands and then confess his sin. It's as though the guilt of the sinner was conveyed uh, through his arms, down to his hands, and transferred to the lamb. Then the sinner uh, took the knife, killed the lamb. So the lamb died as a direct result of the sinner's action. The priest would take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the altar to make atonement for the person's sin. Well, folks, we know that all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, all of those lambs slaughtered, pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice that would be made one day by Jesus. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? John the Baptist told his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the lamb sacrifice that all those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed forward to. 
You see, the Bible says the blood of bulls and goats and lambs doesn't take away sin. Their sin might have been covered until the next sacrifice came along, but the sin wasn't taken away and dealt with completely until the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, offered his life as a sacrifice for sin. And after Jesus, no other sacrifice for sin is needed. It was once for all. And so John sees Jesus as the lamb that has once for all been slain. But even though Jesus was a lamb who'd been slain, notice he was standing. He wasn't dead. What are we reminded of? The resurrection of Jesus. Death in the grave could not hold him because he was sinless. He had no sin. The wages of sin is death. Death could not hold someone who was without sin. And so on the third day, the scripture boldly proclaims for us, Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. He's alive forevermore. Death has no hold on him. And so the Bible says now that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. You never have to be alone in the midst of your problems. You may walk through a valley, you may despair, you may have trials and tribulations, but you are never alone. The Lord who died for you, who bore your sins, lives and reigns and makes intercession for you. Well, John's not done yet describing Jesus. He points out in verse 6 also that he is omnipotent. What's being communicated by the horn, by all these the horns here that we read about, is that Jesus has complete power. A horn was a symbol of power, and seven is a number of completion. So Jesus has perfect power. But you know, he never misuses his power. It's sometimes said that power corrupts and perfect power corrupts perfectly but not so with Jesus. Well, another description John sees in verse 6 is he's the supreme overseer. John also saw seven eyes. You get the picture? An eye, of course, sees seven. Again, a number of completion. So what's John communicating here about Jesus? Not only does he have all power, but he also sees everything. He's omnipotent and he's omnipresent. I think of what King David wrote in Psalm 139, that, that God is everywhere. King David said, if I wanted to go this direction or that direction and, and get away from God, there's nowhere I could go to get away from him. God's everywhere and he sees everything. Again, he's omnipresent. He sees all. He's, he's all wise and he's omnipotent. Folks, he is the answer. If we can make it without him, then surely in this search that was made, someone would have been found. But again, no one was found, showing man's depravity and inability. I'm reminded of when Billy Sunday, uh, a Billy Graham of his day, was going into a town, he asked the mayor of that town to send him a list of all of the residents who needed Christ. Well, the mayor 
sent Billy Sunday the entire town registry. Because who is it that needs Christ? Everybody needs Christ. None of us are able on our own. But Jesus is able. Now folks, I want you to notice also that Jesus was there all the time. But John just hadn't seen him until the elder pointed him out to John. The same is often true for us. He's there all along. Sometimes we just don't see him. Folks, think about this too. If, if only one could be found who is worthy, then why do we settle sometimes for lesser lords, lesser lords that are not worthy to direct our lives? We allow ourselves to be ruled by lesser things that are not worthy of a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We let our business rule us. We let our possessions rule us. We let other people rule us. We let the opinions of other people rule us and direct us. Why do we do that? Because, again, only one is worthy. Only Jesus. So Jesus takes uh, steps forward here in this scene that John is describing. He takes the scroll. He simply walked over to God the Father seated upon the throne and he takes the scroll. And no one argues. No one said, who do you think you are? The reins of government passed from the Father's hands into his hands and no one complained. No one protested. No one said, you can't do that. Why? Because he is the undisputed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Folks, why in the world do we resist him so much in our lives? Sometimes we'll try everything but Jesus. Why? Now I want you to notice what happened when Jesus took the scroll. Far from resistance, far from complaints, what I want you to see thirdly is the praise. Verses 8 to 14. There's a threefold praise here. The praise just keeps growing, keeps expanding. Verse 9 says, they sing a new song. Now, don't you just love some of the old songs of the faith, some of these hymns that have so much rich theology and doctrine in them? But do you realize also the Bible says we're to sing new songs? Uh, in fact, about three times in the Psalms, we are commanded by God to sing new songs. People's hearts are to be full of praise of God, and out of a heart of praise, new songs are to roll off of our lips. There's nothing wrong with new songs if they have the proper biblical and theological content. We need to sing new songs. We need to sing old songs. We need to sing new songs. I think Jonathan does a great job of that in our congregation. We sing some of the old and some of the new. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's biblical. And here they are singing a new song. They sing a song of praise for salvation. Verse 9 describes that. And then verse 10 they sing a song of praise for the 
for the purpose and the future that he has given us. They sing a song of praise for the purpose and the future that the Lord has given us. We see that in verse 10. So again, I want to ask you tonight, what problems do you face? Jesus is the answer. He is the great I am. Think of some of those I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace. In other words, folks, he is all sufficient. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. He is the answer. He's not just an answer. He's not just one answer out of many. He is the answer. He is the answer to all of life's greatest dilemmas. Even our spiritual problems and dilemmas. I want to ask you to draw close to Jesus this week. Don't forget it. Don't look at all the problems that you have. Don't look at all the problems we face as a nation and fail to see Jesus. Look beyond the problem and put your eyes on Jesus. And remember, He is sovereign God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a chapter like this in the Scripture that reminds us of the power, the omniscience, the omnipotence, the omnipresence of the Lord Jesus. Lord, that there is no one worthy but Him. Lord, it's staggering to think sometimes some of the heroes that we have. We we look to men or women who have feet of clay. And we don't look to you. Forgive us for that. We need to look to you. Lord, as Christians, as the church, we need to look to you. Everything that's going on in the world, it, it seems to us to be spinning out of control, but it's not spinning out of control. It's in your hands. Everything is happening on time. You've not relinquished your power or your wisdom. You are directing history as you decide and determine. And God, you're directing our lives. Help us to remember that, that you are with us. We're in your hands. And there's no better place to be than that. God, help us to respond as we see heaven responding here in Revelation 5, that we would respond in worship and praise of the one who's worthy. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you.